This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good morning and welcome to the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at UC San Diego. I am Steve Clary, a member of the Executive Committee and the coordinator for this lecture series on Mexico 20 years after NAFTA. We are especially pleased to co-sponsor this series with the UC San Diego Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies. U.S.-Mex is a 30-year-old policy institute at the Graduate School of International Relations and Pacific Studies focused on understanding U.S.-Mexico relationships. More information about the OSHA and U.S.-Mex programs can be found on our respective websites. Today's lecture is titled Mexican Migration to the United States. There are more people of Mexican birth living in the United States than the total number of immigrants in any other country in the world. After decades of increases, Mexican immigration has recently stabilized. Today's lecture will discuss the changes in the U.S. and Mexican economies, in border enforcement, and in shifting demographics that help explain this new stage in the world's largest migration circuit. We're very pleased to have with us today David Fitzgerald. David is the Theodore Gilder Chair in U.S.-Mexican Relations, an Associate Professor of Sociology, and is co-director of the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies at UC San Diego. He's a published author. His most recent book is called Culling the Masses, the Democratic Roots of Racist Immigration Policy in the United in the American Immigrants. He received his master's and PhD from UCLA. Please join me in welcoming David Fitzgerald to OSHA. Well, thanks very much for the, uh, the kind invitation to uh, join you and share the results of some research that I've been conducting for about the past uh, 15 years. It's a topic that's clearly of importance to the people in this room, to San Diego, California, the United States, as well as our neighbors in Mexico. By any standard, Mexican migration to the U.S. is very large. It's been going on for a very long time. And today I would like to talk to you about how we got where we are today and some likely um, implications of current discussions about border enforcement and potential changes in U.S. immigration policy and other changes that might impact those flows. If you look uh, going back to 1848, when what we now call the southwest of the U.S. was the northwest of Mexico, you can see that there's been continuously some uh, migration from Mexico to the U.S. Um, It became particularly large beginning in the early 20th century when uh, U.S. railroad recruiters went down into Mexico to recruit people to go back up, mostly men, to work on U.S. railroads. There were push factors within Mexico, political instability of the Mexican Revolution uh, during the 19-teens, the Cristero War in the 1920s. But the migration really has taken off in an accelerated way, as you can see on this graph, uh, beginning around uh, 1970. And it seems like a moonshot when you look at the, the graph over... Uh, much of that period, but something that's probably under, under or le- less understood uh, just by watching TV or reading the newspapers is that Mexican migration to the U.S. has plateaued and maybe even declined a little bit in the last several years. So if we look at those last several years, if we look at, say, the last couple of decades, and now we're not looking at the, the total stock of people born in Mexico living in the U.S. as we were in the previous slide, we're looking at new flows, annual in-migration from Mexico to the U.S. We can see a more or less bumpy but consistently steady rise um, up until around 2000. And since then, it's fallen quite uh, dramatically um, to 2010, which is the the date for which we have the most recent uh, data. And... There is, there's a lot of flow. There's a lot of flow in and there's a lot of flow out in this migration circuit. And if you observe here the, the bars on the left, the, the dark bars are referring to return migration from the U.S. to Mexico. 
the lighter is migration from Mexico to the U.S. So you can see that there's always a lot of churn. This re represents here 670,000 people moving back from the U.S. to Mexico uh, between 1995 and 2000. But then more recently, we've seen the level of return migration really dramatically increasing to this is one point, almost 1.4 million people going back to Mexico. If you look at new arrivals from Mexico, there's a, these are always estimates, so there's a debate about exactly what the numbers are. But the broad picture here is that there are as many people leaving uh, the U.S. to go back to Mexico as there are new entrants. So new flows from Mexico have basically um, ended when it comes to a net effect. So how did, how did we get into this uh, position? I, I mentioned some of the earlier um, features of, uh, of Mexico-U.S. migration. But if you want to explain this, this really dramatic increase um, that I mentioned beginning in the 1970s, you have to go back to the Bracero Guest Worker Program, which started in World War II. This was a bilateral agreement between the Mexican and U.S. governments to bring workers to work primarily in agriculture, but also to a lesser extent on U.S. railroads. And between 1942 and 1964, it contracted 4.6 million contracted workers over that time period. And today, if you try to trace the life paths of uh, particular Mexican migrants and how they ended up in the U.S., very frequently you'll find that their fathers, or in some cases now their, their grandfathers, were bracero workers. That this was a really important moment in generating the social networks that continue to generate migration from Mexico to the U.S. It's also a program that's important because whenever there are discussions of some kind of new temporary worker program, this is kind of the touchstone against which the, the current discussions are, are made. It's sometimes difficult to appreciate from this side of the border how socially rooted and the culture of small towns in Mexico migration can be. And I've spent a lot of time doing field work in different parts of, of Mexico. And there is a dramatic social mobility that can be had by moving to the U.S. For the average uh, man with an average level of education in Mexico who moves to the U.S., even after you take into account the fact that the U.S. is a much more expensive country to live in than Mexico in many ways, the, the gain to wages is about four times. So this gentleman here, Antonio Munoz, uh, left his village in Jalisco. He went to Oklahoma City, where he is a small businessman. He owns a small construction firm that builds bridges in Oklahoma. He hires people from his village to work uh, there. He lives in a pretty modest tract house. He's, say, upper middle class. He drives a Humvee. He's certainly not rich, 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 but he's, he's doing okay. And uh, when he's back in Jalisco, he looks like... Julius Caesar. I mean, look at the, uh, the house that he's built. And all over villages in, in central West Mexico, you will find these sort of California-style houses or, or other houses that are very obviously owned by migrants. And this is an extreme example of someone who's done quite well. But even, even without this, there are, there are lots and lots of people. I mean, maybe half of the houses in a typical village in the central West will be owned by migrants. And it's obvious to anyone walking down the street that this is someone who's been to the U.S. and done well for themselves and periodically comes back. Perhaps less extreme, more, more common, is simply the fact that people who have gone to work in the U.S. often come back with a, uh, a shiny new pickup, or maybe a pickup that's not so shiny, it's used, but they're going back to a place where really it's impossible to think that working in an agricultural area that one is ever going to be able to buy a car as a young person. It's not going to happen. There's, there's, there's no source of, of capital for your, your typical young person um, in one of these agricultural areas in the Central West to be able to do that. So in the photograph here, you see a, a gathering for the patron Saint Fiesta in this community, and men who've been working in construction in Las Vegas have driven back to their hometown of origin. They're having a pickup a volleyball game here in the field. And just imagine putting yourselves in the shoes of a young person, say 15 years old, who's thinking, do I want to stay in the village and work agriculture and have a really hard time imagining having a, uh, a house or having a vehicle, or do I want to emulate this guy who just got back from Las Vegas in his pickup truck? So the point here is that there is a deeply ingrained culture of migration, that once these, once these generations of migration have become entrenched, 
it's very difficult for government policies to end them. It's not impossible, but it's very, very difficult without the use of extreme coercion to end these flows once they get going. That's something that's true not only of the Mexican case, but of many other migration flows around the world. Let me say a word about unauthorized migration, illegal immigration, undocumented immigration. You can pick whatever term you like, but people who were living in the U.S. and they either entered illegally without inspection or for about the 25 to 40 percent who overstayed their visas. They came in legally, but then they stayed even after their visa expired and they're now living out of legal status. And you can find people living in uh, unauthorized status from around the world. This uh, 15% others includes really the the entire uh, representation of the world's population. But clearly the flow, or or sorry, this is the stock of an estimated 11.5 million people, is clearly dominated by people of of Mexican nationality. About 59% of the overall unauthorized population is from Mexico. And after that, you see the the nationality is broken down into various countries, mostly in uh, Central America and East Asia, and then after that, as I said, the rest of of the world. So one is often asked, why don't all immigrants simply get into line to come here uh, legally? Why would someone break the law to come into the U.S.? Why would they not simply take advantage of the various U.S. uh, visa programs in order to come here legally? So let's, let's talk about that Why and, and take that seriously. Why don't uh, some people do that? Uh, to begin with, there are many different kinds of visas. I'm not going to talk about all the kinds of visas to get into the U.S., but let's talk about temporary worker programs. And the U.S. has a, several temporary worker programs, and there are two big ones that are designated for people with lower levels of skill. By lower levels of skill, I'm talking about anything less than uh, a college education, higher skilled college education or higher. One of them is for temporary agricultural workers, and one of them is for temporary non-agricultural workers. Uh, Mexicans are very strongly represented in both of those programs. There are a majority of both of those programs, and 94% of the temporary agricultural workers. But there's a really important feature of these programs, which is that there is no legal mechanism for transitioning from one of these temporary worker programs to being a legal permanent resident. There there is no way to get into a line to live in the U.S. permanently through one of these temporary worker programs. It simply doesn't exist in the law. Well, how how does one uh, become a legal permanent resident of the U.S., which puts one on a pathway to citizenship if one wants after five years and taking tests of English, uh, a knowledge of civics, no criminal record, and so forth, uh, then one would be able to apply for, for naturalization. But just how does one become a legal permanent resident in the U.S.? About half of the people in a typical year who become legal permanent residents, and there are about a million people a year who become legal permanent residents of of this country, and about half, 47%, are immediate relatives. By immediate relatives, I mean three specific categories. Uh, Spouses of a U.S. citizen, or minor children of a U.S. citizen, or the parents of a U.S. citizen who is an adult. U.S. citizen kids can't sponsor their parents, but once they're adults, they can sponsor their parents. So about half of the flow is coming in under that provision. And then there are a couple of preference categories. 19% come in in family-sponsored preferences, and I'll show you in a minute. That's different categories of family members than these uh, so-called immediate relatives. Then there are employment-based preferences, which are about 13% of the flow, These employment-based preferences are for different classes of extremely highly skilled people. There's the the so-called diversity program, which gives 50,000 visas a year and a lottery, but it's only for countries that don't have very much immigration to the U.S. So if you're from a country like Mexico or China or the Philippines uh, or, or Canada, you're not eligible to apply to that program. And then refugees and asylees are about 16%, and there's some other minor categories. What's really important to understand about this system, though, is that for these preference visas, that's these employment-based preferences and the uh, family-sponsored preferences, that there is a cap per country that works out to be about 26,000 visas a year for people from any given country in the world. And that cap is the same for every country. 
So the number is the same for Mexico as it is for Botswana, as it is for Liechtenstein, as it is for China. There's no um, consideration of the size of the country's population or historical patterns of migration or numbers of family in the U.S., for example. That has some really important implications for what it means for people of different nationalities who want to immigrate to the U.S. Looking at just the family preferences... We can see here on the left, there are different classes of of family um, relationships. And these numbers represent how many years someone has to wait in line once meeting the requirements to be able to actually enter the U.S. There's currently a backlog of more than 4.5 million people, 4.5 million people around the world who have met the requirements to reunify with their family, but they're waiting in line outside of the country. So for all nationals, these these waits can be quite lengthy. But for Mexicans and Filipinos, because of the the large historic size of that migration, de facto they're penalized. If you look at the law, there's nothing that says that Mexicans and Filipinos are are penalized, but but this is how it it works out. So for example, if you are being sponsored um, as the adult children of U.S. citizens, you have to wait 21 years after filing your paperwork in order to be able to enter if you're from Mexico. Well, your, your family sponsors might be dead by the time your, your number comes up. So this, this kind of system, having backlogs that are this incredibly long, um, is a disincentive to coming through the legal system, even for people who theoretically have that uh, option. And that's one of the things that's being discussed in Conference of Immigration Reform, is trying to get rid of this backlog. On the employment preference side, there is a less of a serious backlog, but a backlog nonetheless that penalizes, in effect, people coming from um, India and, and China, I believe. Okay, but remember I said that there is this one category that's uh, 47% of all legal permanent residents to the U.S. In, in, in recent years that's composed of the, the immediate relatives of U.S. citizens. And there is no cap on the number of people who can come in through that category. There's no country cap, there's no absolute cap, and that's really important because it explains why there is so much lawful immigration from Mexico. In other words, people born in Mexico living in the U.S. and illegal status. So Mexico is by far the largest source country of of legal immigration in the U.S. A couple of years ago, about 13.3% of the new legal permanent residents were from Mexico, followed by all the countries in the, um, in the chart. But you can see there's a big gap between the, the country in the first position there, Mexico, and, uh, and China, which is you know, almost about you know, half as much. And uh, then you see the entire world's population after that. So on the one hand, there, there is a lot of authorized migration from Mexico, but there's also a lot of unauthorized migration from Mexico. Both of those facts are, are true. Specifically, if you look at uh, Mexicans who are gaining legal permanent residence status, The vast majority are doing it through different kinds of family reunification provisions, um, far fewer through the employment preferences, and then the rest is kind of a grab bag of various small categories. There's been a lot of attention in the press recently to people coming from Mexico seeking asylum, but only about 1% of legal permanent residents um, from Mexico have successfully sought asylum, and there are no uh, refugees, strictly speaking. So keeping with the theme of, of unauthorized migration, what, what has the U.S. government's uh, policy response been to, to this fact of historically high levels of unauthorized migration? Well, the big news is that under the administrations of uh, George W. Bush and uh, President Obama, but specifically under Obama, there have been more people deported than any other time in, in U.S. history. In fact, Obama, Obama's administration has deported more people than everyone who's been deported in, in U.S. history um, going back to the first deportation statutes. For most of the 19th century, there was no deportation statute, but starting in, in 1892, there was. Um, so you, you can go through decades and decades of U.S. immigration history, adding up all the deportations before you reach the very high levels of, of today. And the government's putting quite a bit of money. It's... You know, people talk about uh, a billion here, a billion there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. The U.S. government is spending about $5 billion, with a B, 
dollars a year on its deportation program of deporting people formally. That works out to a cost of about $12,500 per deportee. So what are some of the effects of that? And this, I think, is almost entirely unknown in the mass media, but there's no question that it's going on. These data are taken from the U.S. Um, Sentencing Commission, which is a government agency that files these reports, is that minor immigration offenses, basically we're talking about entering without inspection, to use the government's terminology, or re-entering without inspection, they are crowding out other federal prosecutions. So if you look at all federal court cases having to do with all topics, you'll see that the share of the federal cases that are devoted to prosecuting uh, immigration-related crimes have more, more or less doubled um, over the last decade. It's the fastest-growing segment of uh, cases in the federal system, and the vast majority, about 83.4% of these cases, are for prosecuting this very low-level of immigration crime. I say low level because usually the federal government is interested in prosecuting drug kingpins, uh, kidnappers of Lindbergh's baby, you know, more, more serious crimes than, um, than, these kinds of, than these kinds of offenses. Let me just show you here, please, please ignore the, um, the top line. This, this figure refers right here to immigration prosecutions for illegal entry. And you can see this really dramatic ramp up uh, beginning in the very last year of the uh, George W. Bush administration, continuing through the Obama administration, where deportations are running at this incredibly high level. Um, and, and this is specifically here, these are people who are being prosecuted. Most people who enter uh, without inspection when they're caught are simply returned to, to Mexico without being formally deported. But these are people who are actually being prosecuted and, and sometimes serving short uh, d detention terms for, uh, for illegal entry. This is this, this lowest level of administrative uh, crime. So they're running at a very high level. This shows the, the similar time period for illegal re-entry for someone who has previously uh, been removed from the U.S. and now they're caught trying to come back in. So they're running at, a, at an historically very high level. Overall, how is the uh, U.S. federal government div dividing up its, um, its prosecutions throughout the entire U.S. for what classes of crimes? You can see that immigration now is the number one crime that the U.S. Uh, is prosecuting. More than a third of all federal cases have to do with these mostly very low-level immigration crimes. Uh, you can see the other kinds of um, categories of, of crime that are involved. And the drug crimes, you know, they're, they're not prosecuting... Uh, possession of uh, drugs for personal use. They're going after drug smugglers, large-scale cross-state operations, and so forth. So this is why the, the immigration um, aspect here really stands out. I, I could show you other graphs um, of how these low-level immigration crime prosecutions are actually crowding out uh, more serious prosecutions. Actually, the, the level of prosecutions of uh, major drug cases, for example, is lower now than it used to be because the, the courts are so clogged uh, particularly in places like Arizona, with this strategy. So that's something that r refers to people of all different nationalities. So far, I've been showing you people of all different nationalities that are, that are being removed. Um, this graph shows you specifically the level of removal. Removal is just a, kind of a euphemism that the government uses for deportation, um, but, but formal removal of, of Mexicans over the last decade. We're talking about a lot of people, 282,000 uh, in 2010, just in that one year. So what else is going on in terms of uh, U.S. government policy on this issue? Well, beginning in the mid-1990s, there was a real ramp-up of border enforcement. Um, this is the amount of money expressed in millions of dollars for Border Patrol appropriations. Uh, the vast majority of that money is spent on the southwest border. And beginning in the mid-1990s, the federal government under uh, the Clinton administration started focusing its border enforcement areas in El Paso, right along the borderline, putting more resources there. It soon um, adopted a similar policy in San Diego as Operation Gatekeeper, and later that policy was expanded across all of the urban sectors of the, the southwest border. And for, for many years, there was a ratcheting up every year of expenditures under both Democrats and Republicans, 
Uh, the reason you see this plateauing here is this corresponds with the, the financial crisis in Washington and the government's, even the U.S. government runs out of money eventually, apparently. What is that money being spent on? Uh, much of it is being spent to hire more Border Patrol agents. So the Border Patrol is now the largest um, uh, justice enforcement style agency within the federal government. You can see this really sharp ramp up over the same uh, period, beginning in the mid-1990s. The darker bar shows deployments on the, the southern border. This kind of lighter uh, teal bar is the northern border with Canada, and then a handful of officers who are involved in, in other areas. A lot of that money has also been spent on physical infrastructure. And for those of us who, who live in San Diego, if you've been down to the border recently, it's been dramatically transformed over the last couple of decades. When I came to San Diego, there was simply this fence, which was made out of uh, surplus landing material from uh, various wars. And it was very easy to cross over. The fence was put in such a way that the, the slants were horizontal. So it was, it was no difficult matter for someone simply to use it as a ladder. To, uh, to climb over. And if you ask the Border Patrol about that, they'll say, well, we really meant that to be an anti-vehicle barrier more than an anti-pedestrian barrier. In any case, it was not very uh, effective by any stretch of the imagination. And now if you go down there, the, the very landscape has been completely transformed. There are secondary fences. There are tertiary fences in some places. Um, certainly on the border between San Diego and uh, and Tijuana, it's extremely difficult for people to get across, and they actually don't catch very many people who are able to get over this physical part of the, of the obstacle course, as it were. Another innovation, uh, as I said, just since I've been in San Diego, has been putting these stadium-style lights all along urbanized sections of the border so that now when you fly east of San Diego heading to you know, Texas or New York or somewhere, you, you will see the border demarcated uh, beneath you. You fly right along the borderline and you can see these lights from 35,000 feet. There has been the adoption of military technologies in terms of all different kinds of sensors and surveillance technologies in order to be able to detect uh, border crossers. Lots of uh, infrared surveillance here. You can see uh, someone showing up on that infrared system. Uh, the, new, um, the new thing is uh, drones. Um, you know, dr drones are not free, and the, the federal government's um, own uh, CBO um, investigations have shown that they're actually quite ineffective in their own terms. But there's a lot of political popularity behind deploying more, more drones um, for this purpose. So one question one might ask is, how have all of these policies, which are primarily designed in, in Washington, D.C., how have those policies of more border agents, drones, um, all sorts of fortifications, how have all of those things, combined with the, the, the way that the U.S. government has designed its immigration policy, how have all of those things actually impacted unauthorized immigration from Mexico? And for that, we need social science to see what are the observed effects? And here at UCSD, we've done a lot of work trying to figure out what are the actual effects on the ground that can be observed um, that require us to get off of our couches and go and actually do, do field work. So I'm going to walk you through this, but I want to give you the, the punchline here. And to give you that punchline, I want to make what I think is an important distinction between two different ways that deterrence might be measured. The first is a notion of immediate deterrence. And the question there is, are people who come up to the borderline and try to get across dissuaded? Are they apprehended or, and then go back home to their, their places of, of residence in the interior of Mexico? Um, or do they see these fortifications? Do they hear the drones? Do they see the wall? Do they see the agents and say, you know what? It's going to be impossible. Forget it. I'm going back home. So to the extent that we see that, we would see evidence of immediate deterrence. And then another question is, is there some kind of remote deterrence? Does the word get out about these kinds of policies such that people who would otherwise have tried to cross simply say it's not worth it and they stay at home in their places of origin in uh, the Mexican interior? We call that remote deterrence. And the bottom line is that we see very little evidence of immediate deterrence and we do see some evidence of, of remote deterrence. Okay, so as I said, the, the policies really started getting serious in the, the mid-1990s. 
So what, what happened in terms of apprehensions of, of people crossing the southwest border? Understanding what apprehensions data mean is always a little bit tricky. For one thing, apprehensions refer to events rather than people. So an apprehension is an event of apprehending someone, but you can have the same person be apprehended multiple times. Um, and then another issue is, is that it's very hard to know how many people crossed successfully and were never apprehended. But these, uh, these data still tell us something. So in this graph, you see uh, the percentage of apprehensions in different sectors of the, of the border. So over here in blue, you see the Arizona sector of the border. Uh, in black, you see the California, basically the San Diego imperial uh, sectors, and uh, Texas in green. So the, the, big, the big story of the first, uh, say, 10 years of this policy is that, sure enough, there were far fewer um, apprehensions in California. Those, those went down dramatically. We no longer see uh, large numbers of people you know, running up the freeway, um, on the five freeway here in, in San Diego. Those numbers went down. And at the same time, people who, free, who previously came through California began crossing through um, Arizona. That, that's that's the, the first big difference. If you look at apprehensions on the entire border, you'll see that they reached this incredible peak of uh, 1.6 million um, around 2000. And then they declined. And it's not clear to what extent this was related to increased border enforcement activity or a, a recession. They went up again. And then since then, they've declined um, you know, fairly, fairly steadily. And they've, they've bumped around a little bit more in the last year or so. But but overall, there's, there's a picture definitely of decline from these very high peaks of apprehensions in 2000. It's also difficult to interpret this because at the same time as you have increased border enforcement, you have a very weak uh, U.S. labor market. Remember that the recession started earlier for Mexican male migrants in particular who are working in construction. The, that, uh, that happened before the, the recession hit the entire economy. So most of this period corresponds to the economic recession. So it's really hard to tease out the differences between these economic and, and policy variables. But we'll try to show you some pieces of evidence that, that help interpret that. Well, one way of asking if this policy was effective to see what was the stock, what's, what's the total number of um, unauthorized immigrants from Mexico uh, living in the U.S. And demographers get this from a method that I can talk about in Q&A if anyone cares. But both independent academic demographers and the Department of Homeland Security come up with extremely similar estimates. So, uh, you know, you can never know because of the nature of the beast exactly what the numbers are, but all, all researchers with whom I'm familiar and, and government officials use very similar numbers. Well, the first point is, is that the unauthorized population from Mexico actually rose during, uh, certainly it did in the, um, in the 1990s quite dramatically, but even in the early 2000s, that unauthorized population continued to rise. So it's difficult to know the counterfactual. How much more would that uh, population potentially have risen had there not been border enforcement? But on its face, that policy was not terribly successful at deterring people. We know from our surveys that we've done and what other academics have done in terms of surveying migrants of different legal statuses is that especially unauthorized immigrants are staying in the U.S. twice as long as they used to. So it used to be that there was a very circular pattern in Mexico-U.S. migration where people would come up here, they would work for nine months, and then they would go back to their, their place of origin in Mexico. And now that circular migration has been replaced with much more long-term migration after someone has risked their life and paid a high smuggler's fee um, to, to cross into the U.S. They're not going to leave it as early as they would have previously. They're going to get a better return on their investment and, and work here longer, live here longer, and so forth. But we also know that in the last several years, the unauthorized population has fallen. Even as the, the legal population has remained steady, the unauthorized population has fallen, um, specifically with reference to, to Mexico here. What are the other known effects of this policy that we can observe? Well, the, the Border Patrol and, uh, and the Mexican uh, foreign ministry keep track of the number of dead bodies that are found uh, of, of people who died trying to cross the border. And from both sources, we know that there is, there's a very high death toll 
Um, since the onset of high border enforcement in, uh, in the mid-1990s, you know, we're talking about, um, oh, if you were to bring this up to 2013, we're talking about more than 6,000 people who have died trying to cross the southwest border into the U.S. And even as apprehensions have fallen, the, uh, the number of people who, who are dying have not. So on average, you have typically uh, more than one a day who die, <clears throat> although they're concentrated during the, the summer months. And most of these deaths are happening now in Arizona. So this, this is a chart taken from the Arizona Daily Star newspaper. The, the red slice of the pie here refers to the percentage of all uh, migrant deaths along the border happening in that particular sector. And, and you can see that San Diego's share there is, is 2011, uh, so, sorry, um, 211, and uh, far, far higher here in the, um, the Tucson sector. That's since... Uh, since 2001 to uh, 2010. So the strategy of controlling urban areas and forcing migrants into these, uh, these wilderness areas has had this effect. And when the Clinton administration did this, they were quite explicit about using the natural hazards of crossing in the desert as a supposed deterrent to migration. The idea was that people would not risk their lives to walk for four days across the blistering desert of Arizona um, and they wouldn't even try. But in practice, a lot of people are doing that, and, and some of them are not, uh, are not surviving that trip. You know, this is an area of the desert that, and, and for a camper, is beautiful. I camp out in Anza Borrego all the time with my family. I love to go off-road. Off it's, uh, it's a gorgeous place for uh, someone who's you know, on vacation, but it's, uh, it's a deadly place for, for people who are trying to walk for, as I said, three or four days. It's simply not possible to carry enough water to do that safely. And so this is the Border Patrol uh, removing a body that they found of, uh, of this woman who died there in the desert out in, uh, in Imperial several years ago. So what are the other observed consequences of, of border enforcement? So this graph here is showing you two different uh, lines clearly. Um, the first, this gray one, is line watch hours. And line watch hours is a measure of Man hours at the border. How many agents are on the, on the borderline uh, watching, watching the border? The government no longer releases these figures, but, you know, they're probably like this. Um, and the blue line refers to costs that are charged by coyotes, people smugglers, for a door-to-door service from, say, central western Mexico to Los Angeles. And this, this blue one refers to this access here. Um, if you were to bring these data out to 2013, most people are probably paying on the order of $2,500, $3,000 to a people smuggler for a door-to-door service. But as border enforcement is ratcheted up, the coyotes charge more money to be able to, to cross people. And one of the impacts of this policy has been to take a coyote business that used to be kind of a mom-and-pop operation. Just a couple of people could organize this kind of smuggling and now it's become much more extensive, um, involving many, many, many different kinds of people, bundlers of people, lookouts, people driving cars. The uh, drug cartels along the border are charging a, a right for um, smugglers to take people across their territory. It's not so much that the drug smuggling and people smuggling is the same operation. It's simply that the drug smugglers have a lot of weaponry, and they're able to charge people, shake people down in, in that area of the border. So as, as enforcement has increased, then the coyote fees have increased. And we would expect that if there were even more enforcement, that the, the fees would continue to, to go up. Okay, so to, to get more of a handle on, on the impacts of this on people's lives and potentially potential migrants, um, that is to say, how have all of these border enforcement policies affected whether or not people are going to migrate, and if they do, uh, under what conditions? Here at UCSD in the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies, we've conducted surveys of three different towns, in, or these are small towns, large villages, in different parts of Mexico that we've chosen for strategic reasons. On this map here, the darker red areas suggest a higher level of emigration uh, to the U.S. So we've been studying a town in Jalisco. This is a traditional source area. People have been migrating for four generations uh, Yucatan, traditionally not an area of mass immigration to the U.S. It's really in its first generation. And then Oaxaca is kind of in the, uh, kind of in the middle. And one of the things that we do is we survey every single adult in that town 
and then we tried to track down people from that town who now live in the U.S. So we're able to see both people who migrated and people who didn't migrate, the entire uh, population of the town, as well as those who've, who've left. That's, that's our, our target um, audience here. And we asked people extensive questions about if they have ever been to the U.S., and if so, did they go with papers, what kind of papers, if they went without papers, how much did they pay, where did they cross, et cetera, et cetera. And were they ever apprehended? If they were apprehended, did they keep on trying uh, to cross until they eventually succeeded, or did they return to their town of origin? And what we've consistently found in, in all three of these communities, and we go to the same community every three years, what we've consistently found is that almost everyone who tries to get across eventually succeeds. So this gray bar represents people who, on their last trip to the border to try to cross without papers, eventually got across, even if they might have been apprehended um, one or you know, sometimes two or three times. Uh, the black bar represents the percentage from each community in each year who were apprehended at least once on their last time. And depending on the community, you can see that apprehensions might be as much as half of the people who try to cross, in some places less. But what's really striking is this light gray bar that um, more than 90%, sometimes the very high 90s, are eventually succeeding. If you look at uh, different periods in which people have tried to cross without papers, um, here the, the black bar represents the ultimate success rate, and the gray bar represents uh, the number of times that that people were detained from this one particular community in Oaxaca. You can see that the, the ever apprehended uh, bumps around a little bit in the light gray, but once again, consistently, no matter what time period we're talking about, the vast, vast majority of people who try to cross illegally uh, make it across. And a team from UCSD, I wasn't part of it, but a team from UCSD just went back to this town uh, this year, actually, in, in January, and they found that... Um, it wasn't 96% making it, but it was something like 88%. So less, but, but still certainly the vast majority were, were making it across. So what do we conclude from that? Well, we see very little, let me just go back to this, we see very little evidence of immediate deterrence. That is, people who want to cross, who are set on doing that, are going to make it across. Well, what about remote deterrence? We ask everyone in the village, do you plan to migrate to the U.S. in the coming year? And then we are able to see, well, what kinds of people are more likely to say that they are planning to migrate, what kinds of people are planning uh, say that they are not planning to migrate. And after applying some basic uh, controls for various sociodemographic factors, we find that there are a number of independent effects. Uh, one is that men are more likely to say that they will migrate, and that's no surprise. That's what we would expect. This is a typical pattern. People who've already migrated before are also more likely to say that they will migrate. Again, no surprise there. And then very importantly, we see two different independent effects. So one is that people who say that it is very dangerous to cross the border, we ask people how dangerous do you think it is to cross the border um, without papers? How dangerous is it to cross the border? And those who say that the U.S. economy is, uh, is bad on the scale of, of how bad is the U.S. economy, they're less likely to say that they're going to uh, migrate. So we think that there are people who probably would migrate to the U.S. if it were not for the poor U.S. economy, and independently of that, uh, people who are not migrating because of their fear. And the, the fear part is important because when we ask people, we ask people in, in great detail to rank order, what are they most worried about of crossing the border without papers? Are they worried about getting caught? Are they worried about uh, dying of exposure? Are they worried about uh, being attacked by some kind of um, you know, bandit group along the border of the drug gangs or someone else. Uh, we ask people every year to rank order those. And what, what people are most afraid of is not getting caught by the Border Patrol. They're worried about being attacked in this kind of lawless strip of, of territory, and they're worried about dying in the desert. So it, it's, a, it's a physical fear. It's, it's a fear of ending up like that, that woman in the body bag that is having the remote deterrent effect to the extent that there is such an effect. Okay, so let's, uh, let's look forward a little bit here. And as, as I'm sure you all know, there has been a lot of talk uh, going back to the George W. Bush administration of comprehensive immigration reform that narrowly passed um, in 2007. Now there's a version that has uh, passed the Senate, has the support of uh, Obama, 
but it's stuck in the house and very likely will stay um, stuck in the house. But if, if that bill were to pass, how would that affect Mexican migration in particular? One is that it would legalize most of the unauthorized. Um, as I said, about 58% of the unauthorized population, 58-59% are Mexican. It would move the U.S. toward more of a point system. A point system is a Canadian model, which has now been adopted in many other countries, that gives people a certain number of points for various characteristics. And some of those characteristics include having high levels of uh, education, having particular occupational skills, but the point system also includes having family members who live in, in the U.S. So that is a system that would be less advantageous to Mexicans than the current system, but it wouldn't change things as dramatically as most people believe because it would still keep family reunification, the right of uh, certainly immediate family members to, to reunify at the core of the U.S. system. Mo- most of the controversy in, in Congress anyway around this issue this had to do with things like sponsoring siblings. Um, no one of whom I'm aware of, a serious politician, is suggesting that people who are here legally should not be able to sponsor their, their spouses or their, their young children, for example. So the debate about family unification is really um, less, less central, I think, than, than one might get reading the, uh, the newspapers. And this, this bill would also continue to put more money, more people, more technology into uh, border enforcement, which I think would have the effect of potentially creating some kind of remote deterrence. I don't see evidence that it would um, slow down the numbers of people who actually want to try to cross from from doing it, and that it would continue to generate a pretty high um, death toll every year. So how can we explain how can we explain um, these policies and the possibilities that they are going to pass? There are many different factors that one could talk about. There are interesting coalitions around immigration that don't neatly fall on the the left-right divide or Democrat-Republican. As I've said, some of the harshest policies um, when it comes to uh, deportation and particular technologies of border enforcement have been put up by Democratic presidents, for example. Obama's more strict than than George W. Bush in, in many ways. But the, the overall demographic political picture that I think is important to recognize is, is a couple of things. One is that the, the share of the electorate in U.S. presidential elections, I'm not talking about the share of the population because the whole population doesn't vote. I'm talking about the share of the actual electorate um, that votes um, who is white is declining over time from uh, 81% in 2000 to 72% in 2012. Now, this represents a particular challenge for the Republican Party because it's not a stereotype. It's simply true that the the vast majority of voters in presidential elections who vote for a Republican candidate are self-identified as non-Hispanic white. Uh, So both for Romney voters and and also McCain voters, nine out of ten of their voters were were um, self-identified as as non-Hispanic whites. So that, that, that's a declining, uh, just a demographically declining uh, base. And at the same time, we see an increasing share of the vote. Again, I'm not talking about the population. I'm just talking about the electorate here. Uh, an increasing share of the electorate that is Latino, uh, up to 10% in the last election. Asian is smaller, up to around 3% over time. That's going to become much, much more important because there's actually more immigration, for example, to California now from Asia than from Latin America. And why does that matter? Well, if you, if you look at the, how the ethnic vote has broken down for the presidential candidates over time, you'll see some interesting trends here. So this, this represents the ethnic vote for whoever the Democratic candidate was going back to 1992. On the top line here, you'll see that, that blacks, African Americans, are even more likely to vote Democrat than they were in the early 1990s. Um, the story about Latinos is quite interesting because you see that Latinos have bumped around quite a bit. And in 2000 and 2004, uh, George W. Bush got a very significant percentage of the, of the Latino vote, around uh, 40%, uh, because he was considered, in part, because he was considered to be uh, friendly towards Latinos. His immigration politics were quite similar to Obama's immigration politics. Um, but now under... Uh, in, in, in the last couple of elections, Latinos are overwhelmingly going more than 70% for the Democratic candidate. 
and, and that's, that, that's quite well known. What's, what's less understood, I think, is the dramatic change in the, um, the Asian-American vote. So Asian-Americans used to overwhelmingly vote Republican, and there's a, been a very, very steady drive away from the Republican Party and, until the point today where Asians are actually more likely to vote Democrat than, uh, than Latinos. And you see that's, you know, the, the, the white share of, the, of the, um, the, the, the percentage of whites that vote Democrat has bounced around a little bit, but it's, it, it's more or less uh, steady relative to these other trend lines. So the Republican Party doesn't just have a, a problem with Latino voters. They have a problem with anyone who's, who's not white. Um, in part, this is driven by the politics in, uh, in California in 1994 around Proposition 187 that convinced many minority voters that the Republican Party was hostile to, to their interests. Okay, so obviously the, uh, the many, many people in the, uh, the Republican leadership have tried to think about what will this mean for the long-term success of the, of the party going forward from here, and they're thinking of, of the very long run, and, and that has been a major motivation to come together with uh, Democrats, and as I said, the Democrats are also split on this issue in various complicated ways, but basically to form coalitions around the question of immigration reform. But if you look at individual Republican congressional representatives, the vast majority of them are in districts with very low percentages of, uh, of Latino voters. So in this chart here, you can see that this is uh, you know, 142 representatives in districts with between 0 and 10%. So for the individual uh, Republican legislator who was worried about a primary challenge uh, from the Tea Party over this issue, it may be in their own rational, immediate self-interest to be reelected, uh, not to pass conference of immigration reform. But for the, the long-term um, benefit of the, of the party to remain competitive in national elections, specifically when uh, Texas gets to the point where it will become competitive as the Latino share of that vote increases, unless there's some sort of, of change, some sort of gesture on the behalf of the Republican Party um, toward uh, minority voters, one would expect that even Texas will become a competitive state, and it's very, very difficult to win uh, a presidential election for a Republican without carrying Texas. So I think these are some of the dynamics that are, that are driving the current debate in, in Washington, and I look forward to taking your questions after the break. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.